Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was a very sunny morning. I remember waking up and the sun was beaming from the window in my bedroom. I'm from Somalia, so it's a very nice warm country. Let me tell you a little bit about Somalia. We have the longest coast in the world. We are a society of poets. And, well, you're not going to get any poetry from me, just warning you. I woke up that morning and People were cooking. My mother had the usual caterers. You know, I come from a, what you would call a privileged Somali family. Um, my grandparents were doctors. Uh, my mother was an accountant who worked for the Somali government. My dad was an electrical engineer. But what, this day was really strange. What made it really strange was we had these amazing caterers in the house. There was a lot of colors. I mean, I thought, whose birthday are we celebrating today? It certainly wasn't mine. All of a sudden, my neighbor's daughter comes up to me and she says, Oh, Leila, you must be really looking forward to today. You know, it's a big day for you. I remember saying, Well, I don't know what you are talking about because it's not my birthday. In case you haven't noticed, I love birthday celebrations. And she was eight years old. This eight-year-old continued to talk to me and she told me what was going to happen to me this day. At this point, I'm having this out-of-experience body situation. Within seconds, I hear my sister screaming in the other side of the house. When I say screaming, it was like an animal was being massacred. And within seconds, I heard, get Layla, get Layla, it's her turn. Get Layla now. I literally ran. I didn't know what the hell I was running from at this point, but I ran. But I'm a little child. I, they grabbed me, got hold of me, took me to this room. I was pinned down. My clothes was taken off. 
my legs were spread apart. And I was pinned down by women who I trusted, women who I knew. They were aunties, family friends. You know, Somalis were very hospital people. So I didn't know why this was happening to me. My mother wasn't there as well, so that was really strange. And before I knew it, a sharp knife was taken to my body. And this was done by a doctor. At the age of seven, I've endured a practice called female genital mutilation. Female genital mutilation, it's when you partially or totally remove the female genitalia. I felt all the pain. It's painful, someone cutting your flesh off. And as a seven-year-old, to undergo such practice by people you trusted, by a medical profession, you can imagine how devastating that was. I still fought back, but again, like I said, I'm a seven-year-old child. There's only so much I can fight. After that happened, I was taken away to a room. I was literally, there was a room full of gifts. I got a gold watch, I got sweets, I got chocolates. Actually, no, I didn't get the chocolates because apparently I made too much fuss to have chocolates. Hence why I have a chocolate addiction at the moment. Um, by the way, you're allowed to laugh because it is quite humorous. But for me, it was, again, my mother wasn't there. I grew up between Italy and Saudi Arabia as a child. That's my mother holding me as a baby in the deserts of Saudi Arabia. So I grew up in the West most of my life. And I remember thinking FGM was okay because I remember my first day in school, the girls came up to me in the playground and said, oh, Leila, have you been through Gudnin? Gudnin means FGM in Somali. And I said, yes. And the first thing they said was, oh, we can play with her now. And I remember thinking, oh, it's okay then. Because imagine, as a seven-year-old, that really meant a lot to me. The idea of no one playing with me, no one would touch anything you touch, you're considered dirty, you're considered, you'll be stigmatized by the community. More than 200 million women and girls currently living in regions such as Africa, the Middle East, and Asia have been subjected to female circumcision. Over 3 million girls and women are at risk of having the procedure performed in a typical year. Practitioners of female genital mutilation are not always licensed medical professionals. The operation is no safer when performed by legitimate physicians. Though tradition among cultures insists there are medicinal benefits, scientific studies have found that the opposite is true. The World Health Organization strongly discourages doctors from performing this procedure. It makes sense. Anyone who would practice female genital mutilation is a human monster. Some basic facts about female genital mutilation as provided by the World Health Organization. Female genital mutilation, or FGM, includes procedures that intentionally alter or cause injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. The procedure has no health benefits. Procedures can cause severe bleeding and problems urinating, and later on, cysts, infections, as well as complications in childbirth and increased risk of newborn deaths. More than 200 million girls and women alive today have been cut in 30 countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia where FGM is concentrated. 
FGM is mostly carried out on young girls between infancy and age 15. FGM is a violation of the human rights of girls and women. Female genital mutilation comprises all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. FGM is recognized internationally as a violation of the human rights of girls and women. It reflects deep-rooted inequality between the sexes and constitutes an extreme form of discrimination against women. It is nearly always carried out on minors and is a violation of the rights of children. The practice also violates a person's right to health, security, and physical integrity, the right to be free from torture and cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, and the right to life when the procedure results in death. Procedures. Female genital mutilation is classified into four major types. Type 1, often referred to as clitoridectomy, this is the partial or total removal of the clitoris, a small, sensitive, and erectile part of the female genitals. And in very rare cases, only the prepus, the fold of skin surrounding the clitoris. Type 2, often referred to as excision. This is the partial or total removal of the clitoris and the labia minora, or the inner folds of the vulva, with or without excision of the labia majora, the outer folds of skin of the vulva. Type 3, often referred to as infibulation. This is the narrowing of the vaginal opening through the creation of a covering seal. The seal is formed by cutting and repositioning the labia minora, or labia majora, sometimes through stitching with or without removal of the clitoris. Type 4. This includes all other harmful procedures to the female genitalia for non-medical purposes. Example, pricking piercing, incising, scraping, and cauterizing the genital area. Deinfibulation refers to the practice of cutting open the sealed vaginal opening in a woman who has been infibulated, which is often necessary for improving health and well-being, as well as to allow intercourse or to facilitate childbirth. Methods. The procedures performed with or without anesthesia Though the cutter is usually a female elder, in many communities the local barber performs the operation. Traditional practitioners do not usually sterilize the instruments they use. Such instruments include knives, razors, scissors, shards of glass, sharpened rocks, and fingernails. A Ugandan nurse was quoted in 2007 as saying, that one cutter she knew used a single knife on as many as 30 girls. No health benefits, only harm. FGM has no health benefits, and it harms girls and women in many ways. It involves removing and damaging healthy and normal female genital tissue, and interferes with the natural functions of girls' and women's bodies. Generally speaking, risks increase with increasing severity of the procedure. Immediate complications can include severe pain, excessive bleeding or hemorrhage, genital tissue swelling, fever, 
infections, example, tetanus, urinary problems, wound healing problems, injury to surrounding genital tissue, shock, or even death. Long-term consequences can include urinary problems, such as painful urination or urinary tract infections, vaginal problems, discharge, itching, bacterial vaginosis, and other infections, menstrual problems, such as painful menstruations, difficulty in passing menstrual blood, scar tissue and keloid, sexual problems, such as pain during intercourse, decreased satisfaction, increased risk of childbirth complications, difficult delivery, excessive bleeding, cesarean section, need to resuscitate the baby, and a higher rate of infant mortality in general, the need for later surgeries, such as the FGM procedure that seals or narrows a vaginal opening, or type 3, needs to be cut open later to allow for sexual intercourse and childbirth, or deinfibulation. Sometimes genital tissue is stitched again several times, including after childbirth, hence the woman goes through repeated opening and closing procedures, further increasing both immediate and long-term risks. And then there are psychological problems, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, low self-esteem. Who is at risk? Procedures are mostly carried out on young girls, sometime between infancy and adolescence, and occasionally on adult women. More than 3 million girls are estimated to be at risk for FGM annually. Cultural and social factors for performing FGM. The reasons why female genital mutilations are performed vary from one region to another, as well as over time, and include a mix of social-cultural factors within families and communities. The most commonly cited reasons are where FGM is a social convention or social norm, the social pressure to conform to what others do and have been doing, as well as the need to be accepted socially and the fear of being rejected by the community, are strong motivations to perpetuate the practice. In some communities, FGM is almost universally performed and unquestioned. FGM is often considered a necessary part of raising a girl and a way to prepare her for adulthood and marriage. FGM is often motivated by beliefs about what is considered acceptable sexual behavior. It aims to ensure premarital virginity and marital fidelity. FGM is in many communities believed to reduce a woman's libido and therefore believed to help her resist extramarital sex acts. When a vaginal open is covered or narrowed, or type 3, the fear of the pain of opening it, and the fear that this will be found out, is expected to further discourage extramarital sexual intercourse among women with this type of FGM. Where it is believed that being cut increases marriageability, FGM is more likely to be carried out. FGM is associated with cultural ideals of femininity and modesty which include the notion that girls are clean and beautiful after removal of body parts that are considered unclean, unfeminine, or male. Though no religious scripts prescribe the practice, practitioners often believe the practice has religious support. 
Religious leaders take varying positions with regard to FGM. Some promote it. Some consider it irrelevant to their religion. Others contribute to its elimination. Local structures of power and authority, such as community leaders, religious leaders, circumcisers, and even some medical personnel can contribute to upholding the practice. In most societies where FGM is practiced, it is considered a cultural tradition, which is often used as an argument for its continuation. In some societies, recent adoption of the practice is linked to copying the traditions of neighboring groups. Sometimes it has started as part of a wider religious or traditional revival movement. International Response Building on work from previous decades, in 1997, the World Health Organization issued a joint statement against the practice of FGM together with the United Nations Children's Fund, or UNICEF, and the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA. Since 1997, great efforts have been made to counteract FGM through research, work within communities, and changes in public policy. Progress at international, national, and subnational levels includes wider international involvement to stop FGM, international monitoring bodies and resolutions that condemn the practice, revised legal frameworks, and growing political support to end FGM. This includes a law against FGM in 26 countries, in Africa and the Middle East, as well as in 33 other countries with migrant populations from FGM-practicing countries. The prevalence of FGM has decreased in most countries, and an increasing number of women and men in practicing communities support ending its practice. Research shows that if practicing communities themselves decide to abandon FGM, the practice can be eliminated very rapidly. In 2007, UNFPA and UNICEF initiated the Joint Program on Female Genital Mutilation and Cutting to accelerate the abandonment of the practice. In 2008, World Health Organization, together with nine other United Nations partners, issued a statement on the elimination of female genital mutilation to support increased advocacy for its abandonment, called, quote, Eliminating Female Genital Mutilation, an interagency statement. This statement provided evidence collected over the previous decade about the practice of FGM. In 2010, World Health Organization published a global strategy to stop healthcare providers from performing female genital mutilation in collaboration with other key UN agencies and international organizations. In December 2012, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution on the elimination of female genital mutilation. Building on a previous report from 2013, in 2016 UNICEF launched an updated report documenting the prevalence of FGM in 30 countries, as well as beliefs, attitudes, trends, and programmatic and policy responses to the practice globally. In May 2016, World Health Organization, in collaboration with the UNFPA-UNICEF Joint Program on FGM, launched the first evidence-based guidelines on the management of health complications from FGM.
The guidelines were developed based on a systematic review of the best available evidence on health interventions for women living with FGM. To ensure the effective implementation of the guidelines, World Health Organization is developing tools for frontline healthcare workers to improve knowledge, attitudes, and skills of healthcare providers in preventing and managing the complications of FGM. The World Health Organization response. In 2008, the World Health Assembly passed resolution WHA61.16 on the elimination of FGM, emphasizing the need for concerted action in all sectors, health, education, finance, justice, and women's affairs. World Health Organization efforts to eliminate female genital mutilation focus on strengthening the health center response, guidelines, tools, training, and policy to ensure that health professionals can provide medical care and counseling to girls and women living with FGM, building evidence, generating knowledge about the causes and consequences of the practice, including why healthcare professionals carry out procedures how to eliminate it, and how to care for those who have experienced FGM. Increasing advocacy, developing publications and advocacy tools for international, regional, and local efforts to end FGM within a generation. As the traditionally Islamic practice has been condemned as barbaric, many of its defenders have pointed out that infant males born to Christian, Jewish, and Islamic cultures are also subjected to non-therapeutic circumcision without their consent. While this is true, the procedure in question is typically performed by medical professionals who observe sterility protocol and use the appropriate instruments. Infant male circumcision rarely, if ever, leads to health complications later in life. Prosecution One practitioner of female genital mutilation that was brought to justice was prosecuted in the United Kingdom. The procedure was performed in February of 2019. The defendant cut her three-year-old daughter and was forced to seek medical attention when she began to bleed profusely. This occurred 34 years after the practice was outlawed in the UK. People who respect human rights and support protections for women and girls don't need this law to convince them that this procedure is immoral. Only a human monster would need more persuasion. And now, an interview with Amanda Parker, an activist for women who have undergone female genital mutilation and for the cessation of the practice itself. Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters. I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. 
hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, Listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back. Relax and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29 year old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. All right, so thank you very much for doing the, the podcast, Amanda. And uh, first thing I'm going to ask you, uh, what is your background as it relates to this issue? What inspired you to get involved uh, with the cause of um, your the endeavor to eliminate the practice of female genital mutilation? Thanks for having me, Morgan. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and to talk about this topic, which is so dear to my heart. I have been working on this issue in collaboration with the founder of the AHA Foundation. Her name is Ayan Hirsi Ali for about 12 years now. I've been working with her. 
She herself is a survivor of female genital mutilation. She grew up in Somalia, and as a five-year-old girl, her grandmother had her undergo the procedure. And I met Ayan about 12 years ago and started working with her. And as I learned more about this practice, I couldn't believe that it was something that was happening here in the United States and that it was happening with as much frequency as it is. And as I learned more and got a better understanding of the practice, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So this is something that has been a very big part of my life for about 12 years now. And what are the complete parameters of your role? So you're an activist. Uh, is, is there, are there other dimensions to that? Sure. I oversee all of the women's rights work here at the AHA Foundation. And within the scope of that work, we try to end honor violence, forced marriage, child marriage, and female genital mutilation here in the United States. And within those programs, what we do is we help to raise awareness, doing things like podcasts and talking to folks like your listeners, but we also do trainings with professionals who are likely to encounter cases and teach them how to appropriately handle these cases. We also work directly with women and girls who are facing these issues, and sometimes men and boys, not female genital mutilation, obviously, but um, honor violence and forced and child marriage, certainly, who are facing these issues here in the U.S. to help them find appropriate services that are local to them. And we also do a lot of policy work to encourage legislators to better protect individuals from these forms of abuse here in the U.S. And finally, we do a little bit of research, but that's kind of a smaller but growing part of our work that we do. And with um, meeting with women who've, who've been subjected to the procedure, aside from uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, what do you find uh, is the common denominator in terms of how they feel about the procedure? How many are opposed? How many are in favor, if you could estimate in, on a percentage basis? Well, I would say that the common denominator is that every case is different. And when I am dealing with someone who is impacted by female genital mutilation, though, for the most part, they're coming to us because they need help. This isn't something that we typically see um, and help to stop it in, in advance because it's something that's usually happening to young girls. And it's, it's really difficult to help them because they're not sure, you know, they don't know that they have rights. They may not know that this is going to happen to them. They might not know that it's a human rights abuse. So it's something that most of the women that we work with who have been impacted by FGM are coming to us after the fact. And because of that, they are coming to us saying, I need, you know, medical help, or I need to speak with a therapist, or I'm looking for a domestic violence shelter or something like that. So most of the women that I speak to about this practice are either impacted by it and are very much not in favor because they are facing some pretty serious consequences because of having undergone female genital mutilation or there are other activists that are fighting alongside me to try to end this practice in, in the U.S. So I would, I would say 99.9% .9 of the women that I am in contact with who are, have undergone female genital mutilation are against the practice. But that is certainly not to say that all women who are affected by FGM are against the practice. It's, but it is the nature of my work that I am much more in contact with women who are definitely not in favor of the practice. So when many of these women move to the United States, uh, what have you found as their reaction to seeing how women in America have so many more rights and protections 
and and so much more liberty. Is it? Do you feel that that has influenced them to come forward, and that it's helped them to understand that they've been brainwashed into thinking that such a procedure is uh, is healthy and, and justifiable. It's really interesting. I definitely think that the freedoms that are afforded to women here in the United States does empower women who have come to the country, come to the U.S. from from countries that have a high prevalence rate of FGM. It does empower them to want to come forward and speak up or to feel that they are able to. And also, even just gaining the knowledge that this is something that is not acceptable here and that is considered a human rights abuse is something that they might not have grown up with and they might not have ever considered before. And so they might not have even realized that symptoms that they were facing were because of what had been done to them as, as a child. So even just gaining awareness about the practice itself, about the history of it, about the fact that it's not required by any major religion, um, just getting an awareness about the facts of female genital mutilation is many times enough to empower women to seek help if they need it after the fact. Uh, I would also point out that this is something that is not being done to little girls because families are trying to hurt them. It is definitely a form of child abuse and it is internationally considered to be a human rights abuse, but moms and grandmas, and it's it's typically the females within the families that are, are perpetuating this practice, although it is supported by the entire community, they're doing this because they think it's the best thing that they can do as a mother or as a grandmother. They think that they're doing what they need to do to be a good mom to um, take care of their their daughter. This is something that in many cultures where female genital mutilation happens, um, it's very much tied to a girl's marriageability. And a girl might not be considered marriageable unless she has undergone female genital mutilation in these communities. So for the parents to have a good match for their daughter, marriage-wise, um, they might think that this is something that they have to do. They also think they might think that they need to do it um, for a number of reasons, like cleanliness or um, just because it's the culture within their community, or they might think that it's required as, as part of their religious practice. But this is something that they're not doing to harm their children. They really are doing it because they think it's the best thing they can do as a parent. Do you feel that activists like yourself have made a difference? Do you think that... Uh... There's been a reduction globally in the practice of FGM. Uh, are there any statistics that you're aware of? Sure. I, I know that that activism around this has made a big difference. And globally, the percentages of women and girls who are being cut have gone down. But because of population growth, the absolute numbers of women and girls who have undergone female genital mutilation have gone up. The most recent numbers that I've heard are that 200 million women and girls worldwide have undergone female genital mutilation. And uh, you, you touched on this earlier, but um, it, female genital mutilation is not mentioned in the Quran or any other religious text, um, but many of the practitioners still insist that there's something inherently Islamic about the practice. How do you think this view evolved? Do you think it has to do with illiteracy, how so much of their knowledge is received secondhand and tends to come with a lot of uh, baggage as it pertains to uh, cultural biases? This is a practice that 
predates all major religions and is not required by any major religion, but it has been co-opted by religious sects, religious leaders, and patriarchal societies, for sure. And it's certainly not exclusive to Islam. If you look at, for example, in Ethiopia, something like 74% of women and girls are at risk of undergoing female genital mutilation, and it's across the board, Christians, Muslims, and Jews in in that country. It's, it's a tribal custom rather than a religious custom, but that doesn't mean that um, people haven't picked it up as a, as a part of their religious practice or it's not being pushed upon uh, communities by their religious leaders because it's something that at its core is intended to control the sexuality of women and girls. And that is part of quite a few um, religious beliefs that are, you know, for patriarchal societies. So it's, it's not inherent to Islam. It's not inherent to Christianity, but it is something that's happening in both of those communities. And, and they, in some of those communities, think that they need to do it for religious reasons, even though that, that's not correct. In the, the voice track that I already recorded for this episode of the podcast, I mentioned that there are a lot of very detrimental health effects from undergoing this procedure, and some of them are psychological. It, it's traumatic because I don't think they're ever you know, unconscious while it's performed. And, uh, and in some cases involves having something removed from their body by someone who's not a professional medical practitioner. Um, so have you found that uh, the trauma kicks in right away, that they live with it, or is it only after they discover how wrong it is when suddenly they realize, oh my God, a terrible thing has been done to me? It really varies. And and I'm glad that you bring up the psychological consequences because it's not only health consequences that are associated with female genital mutilation, but the World Health Organization splits up female genital mutilation in four different types. And um, they vary in terms of physical impact and the level of, of um, cutting that is happening, essentially. But um, even with the least physically invasive forms of female genital mutilation, you can have lifelong health and psychological impacts that are associated with that. So it's not necessarily that you have to have a very physically invasive form of female genital mutilation to have lifelong health and emotional impacts that go along with that. And in terms of physical impacts, this is something that's being done to a the this very small body part of a little girl. And in talking to pediatricians about it, it's very difficult to um, make even a very small cut without damaging tissue more than you intend or damaging nearby tissue, causing unintended scarring. So even in, in less physically invasive forms, there are certainly uh, risks health-wise, but uh, a girl who's undergone female genital mutilation, as you mentioned, in many cases, it's it's done uh, without anesthesia, without antiseptic. It's done by just to get graphic and talk explicitly about what we're talking about, because I honestly think that a lot of people in the West don't have a good grasp of exactly what female genital mutilation is. In this most physically extreme form, a little girl is taken behind closed doors. Her legs are spread apart. She's held down. And a sharp object like a knife or a razor blade or a pair of scissors are used to cut away at her genitals. And in that most physically extreme form, they cut away all of the external genital tissue possible, the clitoris, the, the as much as you can from the out, outside as possible, the inner and outer labia. 
and then they sew that wound shut, leaving almost or leaving only a small hole for urination and menstruation. And as you've mentioned, there are no health benefits and there are lifelong health and psychological impacts that are associated with this. And you can imagine, you know, after having undergone this, the difficulties with with intercourse and childbirth and and how it might make those activities difficult and painful. But emotionally, it's not even just that initial moment of being cut that can be traumatic for a woman or girl who has undergone female genital mutilation. There are many points throughout her life that might re-traumatize her, including first sexual experience, marriage, visiting a physician. Uh, This is something that women and girls that I've spoken with often suffer from PTSD, from nightmares and flashbacks, depression. So there are a number of very serious lifelong health consequences that are associated with this practice. Yeah, one one story that affected me was this one woman who had undergone the procedure was uh, she had some some urinary dysfunction that resulted in her retaining urine to the point where her stomach swelled and she was not married and she was accused of being pregnant out of wedlock and she was murdered for it. Oh. So it's, it's it's incredible how much disinformation exists out there about the the so-called benefits of these procedure. Absolutely. And, and that's very extreme, but even in, in slightly less extreme cases, I work with a woman here in the U S who underwent female genital mutilation as a little girl. And she talks about how when she was sitting in class as a little girl, she would get in trouble because she had to leave to go to the girl's restroom so frequently because it, it impacted her ability to urinate. And she was labeled a troublemaker by her teachers because she was constantly leaving to go to the restroom. And because of that, she wanted to be a, a good kid and be thought of as a good kid. So she would try to not leave the classroom to use the restroom. But then she's sitting there dying to use the restroom and she's distracted and she's not paying attention in class. And that's not even getting to the point of of your peers thinking that you're pregnant and having sex before marriage and murdering you. This is just trying to get through a day of class and having difficulties. Was was that in Africa? That was here in the U.S. Oh, that was in the U.S. Wow. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out the Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
new episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's a lot of um, blowback from people who are, who are big proponents of the procedure and who are opposed to the advancement of the status of women and girls in general, particularly in Africa. I mean, Boko Haram kidnapped girls just because they were going to school. Um, so does Ayan Hirsi Ali still have to be protected with armed guards or are there still people threatening her life because of her activism and her writings? Unfortunately, yes. It seems like that's going to be something that is going to be part of her life forever. Has she? Have there ever been any close calls? Has she come close to being assaulted or murdered or anything? I I definitely can't discuss her security situation just because it's not um, it's not something that that is helpful to her in, in that regard. But um, but I will say that it's it's serious and it's something that is taken very seriously and and she uh, unfortunately has to think about it when the rest of us have freedom to move around and and walk around and say and think what we want to say. Um, oh, yeah. She doesn't have that freedom. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do you, do you have any idea? Um, I'm sure she must get hate mail, hateful emails. Uh, have you ever read any, or has she ever told you about the kind of things that these people? Uh, communicate to her? Oh, sure. You don't have to go very far to find hateful things written about her, um, emailed in or posted on websites or, uh, you know, written in comments to op-eds. So it's it's not hard to find, unfortunately. And uh, do you happen to be a mother? Not yet. Okay. And have, have, you, um, have you met with a lot of women who have daughters and who may not have um, had them undergo the procedure, or those who have. Uh, either way, what do you find there, is their feelings about about that? The the moms that I have worked with personally are, by and large, trying to not be forced to go back to their country of origin because they are concerned that if they go, that their daughters will be cut against their will. So. The mothers that I have worked with are very much against this practice and are fighting very hard to keep their daughters from having to undergo it as well. And that is across the board something that I have seen. And I know that it's not the case, obviously, with all moms or this practice would, would not continue. However, the because of the nature of the work that I do, the women that I am in contact with, the mothers that I am in contact with are, are fighting very hard against this procedure. And some of them are, are fighting alongside me in legislatures asking to have laws put in place to better protect children like their own. And some of them are, are um, in the shadows working really hard just to protect their own families. Yeah. And it may not be uh, so simple because I remember I read the uh, Ian Hersiali's book infidel and she mentioned her mother and father didn't want it to be done. But one day when they were both away, her grandmother basically did it behind their backs. So it's, 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 a, it's really odd how it seems to be the matriarchs are so much more determined to have this done. Yeah, it really is the, the moms and the grandmas who are, who are perpetuating the practice, even though it is something that is supported by entire communities. It's frightening if you ask me to think about not being able to leave your child with their 
aunt or their grandmother or another family member because you're afraid that that it will only take a moment for your child to be irreparably harmed for the rest of their life. And uh, one thing I, I read about uh, the medical uh, byproducts, medical complications, is that one of the motivations for performing this procedure, particularly the, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, clitoridectomy, removal of the clitoris, is that so that she can never experience sexual pleasure. But that's actually not as effective as they think, is it? That's true. In order to remove the entire clitoris, you would have to kill a woman because it's something that goes deep inside your body. And, and so it's, and there are other ways aside from the clitoris for a woman to experience sexual pleasure. So the intent is to curb libido and to remove that sexual pleasure. And in some cases it certainly is effective because of, of pain, discomfort, scarring, but in others, they are, as you said, not, not nearly as effective as they would like to be. And uh, when you've discussed um, with the women you've met who've undergone the procedure, um, how do they feel about the, 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 the individual who performed it? Do they, do they forgive them or are they resentful? What, what kind of feelings come up when they speak of those individuals? That's a great question. And it very much varies on the individual and on their relationship with that person otherwise. So for some of them, this is the only situation in their childhood that they could consider or think of as abusive and in an otherwise loving and healthy family scenario. And in those cases, they might have very conflicted feelings about what happens to them, or they might, you know, but many, you know, many individuals, this is not, this might not be the thing that they think about when they go to a therapist. For example, they might want to talk about their jobs, or they might want to talk about their relationships with their significant other, or how they're feeling about themselves. And it, you know, there might be other things that are going on in their lives that don't, you know, that seem to outweigh the impact from, from undergoing female genital mutilation. So it really is very much an individual thing and how they respond to having undergone it themselves and how they respond to those people who were the ones who perpetuated this practice and, and had them undergo the practice is a very individual and different thing. And I've seen women who will no longer speak with their, their family member who had this undergo this practice. And I've seen women who have a healthy relationship with their their mothers or grandmothers or whoever it is that, that had them cut still. So it really varies widely and depends a lot on the the whole of the relationship that they have with that individual. Do they is coming out with it, uh, talking to another human being about it, is is that a difficult thing? Like I know a lot of people who have been sexual sexually abused have trouble opening up about it. Is this is this an experience they have a hard time putting into words? This is something that is incredibly difficult for many survivors to talk about. And that's for many reasons. One is it's not an easy conversation, even in the West, to talk about the genitals of a girl. That's something that makes all of us a little uncomfortable or squeamish, unless we're in a very clinical setting or we're a physician or something. But for many of us, it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And in communities where female genital mutilation is practiced, it's often considered taboo to talk about the genitals of a little girl. But on top of that, we know that 
that many families are telling their daughters that it's sinful to talk about it, that they shouldn't be talking about it. So there's this additional pressure on top of it being something that's uncomfortable and that we might consider shameful to talk about, even just because of the the pressures of society. Many of these girls are also being told by their families that this is something that they're not to talk about. So uh, that those two things make it very difficult for them to talk about in, in many cases. But on top of that, it is a form of abuse and trauma and that also adds a layer of difficulty. So it's incredibly courageous when a woman talks about this with someone that they're talking to for help or, you know, to try to find help or, or to um, advocate against the practice. It's, it's so courageous. Every time I hear a woman talk about what she's undergone when she's discussing female genital mutilation, I'm, I am personally awed by it because I can't imagine how difficult that is. But despite that awe, um, is it challenging for you personally coming from a country, as I mentioned earlier, that has so many freedoms and rights for women to be able to, to try to understand what it's like to, to be a woman in that culture? Does, does, does that make it difficult for you to know what to say, know how to react? It's definitely been a learning process for me to, to learn about the best way to communicate with, with survivors. I think, though, that the, the hardest part for me really, though, was wrapping my brain around why a loving mother would ever do this to her daughter. And that certainly kept me up nights for a long time when I first started in this work and before I really internalized the idea that moms are doing this because they think it's the best thing for their, their daughters and for their children. I, I really had a hard time with that. And, and it's something that the practice itself enrages me, but I have a lot of compassion for the individuals involved because I know that, that moms aren't doing this to be hurtful and that there's so much that needs to be done in the United States and globally in terms of education and outreach so that there's better awareness about the fact that there are no health benefits, that there are lifelong health and psychological consequences associated, and that no major religion mandates this practice. I think that um, I think that we are really, really lacking in those efforts, and we need to see that happen so that we can we can really see the tide turn on this practice. It'd be interesting to hear how a mother of a girl in this hemisphere feels about it. Have you, have you happened to have ever discussed this with your own mother? I actually have discussed it with my own mother. And, and my mom was a woman who was from the Midwest and considered herself to be, a, she was a very strong Christian and she was a big time feminist. And she, I am sure is one of the reasons that I, became involved in this and have, have made it into my life's passion. She was absolutely horrified when she realized the, the numbers of women and girls who are at risk here in the United States. And my mom is definitely a big part of the reason that I do this work. She was a feminist herself and she was very aware of this practice. And, but when I started getting into this work in depth and, and found out the serious numbers of women and girls who are impacted by it in the United States, she was shocked as well. And, and I think all of us and, and my mom included when she 
started thinking about the practice, she couldn't believe that moms and grandmas would do this to their little girls. So it took, it took some time for her to wrap her head around it too. Yeah. If you're a moral person at all, you'd be appalled by it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well we're just about out of time. Uh, so I'm going to let you go, but I thank you very much for doing this interview. And uh, I think it'd be very enlightening for our listeners. Morgan, thank you so much for helping to bring light to this. It's hugely helpful for the work that we're doing that awareness is being raised around it. And I am grateful for your attention and for your thoughtful questions and sensitivity around this really important issue. Yes, thank you very much, Amanda. Have yourself a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters, brought to you by Leader One Podcast Network. I appreciate all the feedback I have gotten, as well as the subscriptions. Welcome to the show if you are a new listener. Another Leader One podcast is entitled The Philan Foundation for Mental Health. The following is a sample of that podcast. These feelings of anxiety, their experiences with depression, a lot of people don't feel as if they have a support system they can reach out to. Trauma therapy, it's central to, it's very important to pace the process of opening up. Um, people need to be given space to be able to open up at their own time. You know, it's, it's you know, on their own, on their own time. And, and if they, if, if it's pushed too quickly, then people will feel overwhelmed. Do you feel that that's a myth that women are more emotional? Oh, no, no, not at all. I think they both have, have more emotion and have more words for emotions and have more permission to express it. So it's across the board. Women have, have first are wired in terms of their brains up to be like a bit more on the emotional side. Friends that just weren't comfortable around somebody with a disability and they couldn't cope. It was them that couldn't cope. I hadn't, well, I had changed, but I hadn't changed as a person, but and so I had some people be very honest with me and say, I'm sorry, I can't handle this. But also ones that just stopped calling. And that was heartbreaking. You know, I make sure that the person is, is, is comfortable and comfortable with me. And that is essential. I have to make that person feel basically like they're back in the womb. I mean, they have mm-hmm. to really be physically, mentally, um, um, spiritually comfortable. While I believe that one of the worst things you can do is compare grief or use the words at least, I know that when it comes to pain and bereavement, we could have had it much, much worse. I do not lose perspective of that ever. This is Morgan Rector, host of the Philan Foundation for Mental Health podcast. This podcast features discussions with both mental health professionals and people like you and me who suffer the vicissitudes of the human condition. As a conglomerate, we educate the masses about the truth of mental illness and dispel misinformation and stigma. Available on iTunes and other platforms.